in the beginning when God. That's just a statement about God's early activity, whereas the first, the words of the King James Version, and also in the New International Version, stake a claim for the origin of all that is. In the beginning, before anything was, there was God. And God created all that is. That was the distinctively Hebrew response to the question which must be posed to any thinking mind. Where did all this come from? Why is there anything at all? And of course, scientific endeavour continues to probe the universe in all its manifold dimensions, still seeking more definitive answers. So the opening words of the Bible then are a faith statement, a matter of belief regarding how it all began, how anything at all came to be. But then, so are the views of those who believe there is no God. It is a matter of choosing what you believe based on all that you know and the views of those whom you trust. At one stage, there was little doubt. This thing is annoying me a little bit. <laughs> Doesn't like me either. <laughs> At one stage, there was little doubt in the Western world that the Hebrews had got it right. But over two millennia, with the rise of increasing sophistication, not only of scientific method, but biblical, anthropological, and archaeological research, the literal word of the scriptures regarding how things came to being no longer squared with the discoveries of scientific inquiry. This led some to the belief that science had disproved the basis of faith, while others were led to cling tenaciously of views of God that didn't fit the known facts. Others again began to dig more deeply into the truths that lay behind the ancient worldviews reflected in Scripture. And we always need to keep in mind that that single volume labelled holy, that sits, oh, what are you doing? I was going to say it sits in many pews. <laughs> but you're all familiar with them. That single volume labelled Holy is an extraordinarily complex collection of material in at least two major foreign languages, collected over 2,000 years of oral tradition, handwritten scrolls, papyri, and letters first translated into English over 500 years ago, 1526 to be exact, and revised editions and new translations are appearing to this very day. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that the Presbyterian Church requires those who train for its ministry to have a degree in theology. In the words of Paul's letters of the Corinthians, they are to be servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. But what sort of God are we talking about? In the earliest times, it was thought that storms, floods, 
earthquakes and other natural phenomena were the direct action of God sitting above the bowl of the sky and, for example, opening windows of heaven to allow the rain to fall. That's what it looked like. After the Enlightenment, when science had begun to discover much more about the laws of physics and na the nature of the universe, that gave way to the idea of a kind of first cause, a clockmaker god who set the whole thing running and took no further active part. And some are happy to think of God as some kind of power, something akin to the picture painted by Star Wars. May the force be with you. However, the advances of quantum physics are revealing deeper and deeper complexities with mind-boggling immensities on the one hand and on the other, subatomic particles of infinitesimal dimension. Werner Heisenberg, a German physicist, awarded the Nobel Prize in 1932 for his book The Creation of Quantum Mechanics, once said, the first gulp from a glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist. But at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. And more recently, M. Thomas, author of Into the Abyss, uh, said, just as in the written scriptures, the Spirit of God leaves us clues in the universe, the scriptures of creation, they draw us toward truth at the end of any authentic, authentic, any authentic scientific endeavor. They are the fingerprints of the Creator, identifying and declaring the story of creation. Speakers at a seminar on faith and science held in May 2018 at St. John's in Wellington and led by world-ranking scholars and physicists led us, the audience, to a similar conclusion. But there's more to it than that. Christian thinkers from the earliest times have been working out what the life and teaching of the man Jesus might tell us about the nature of the one he called Abba. John, one of the most theological and profound writers of the early church, starts his gospel by claiming that the one he writes about is the very living word of God, the true light which enlightens everyone. He it was that spoke so eloquently, not just about a God who creates, but about a God who deeply loves. Passage after passage in the Old Testament speaks of the steadfast love of God, a love that never ceases, a love that is new every morning. This is the understanding of God that inspired St. Francis, and it was a deep engagement with Franciscan spirituality that informed the work of a little-known but significant medieval theologian with a very strange name, John Dunscollis. He is quoted regularly by such Franciscan writers as Richard Rohr. The name, by the way, just comes from the fact that he was born in the little village of Duns in Scotland. Uh, it's uh, about a day's walk southeast of Edinburgh. 
my wife Diane and I uh, recently finished an e-book on the importance of his thinking called Scottish for Dancers by Sister Mary Beth Ingham, professor of phil philosophical theology. It was originally used, oh, I think, yeah, it's up there, yeah. It was originally uh, used as a text in a graduate course affectionately known by that name. We found it both a stimulating and a challenging read. She writes, like Francis before him, Scotus is struck by the beauty of the created order and understands its existence as a gift from a loving God. The beauty of creation manifests itself both visually and through the song or canticle of the universe. This beauty sets the stage for an encounter, an encounter with this gracious God so personally attentive and intimately present to all that is, yet so hidden and discreet. It is this God who gently calls each person to respond to goodness in love. and invites and supports each one to imitate that love in self-gift and who ultimately graces each with eternal life in the fullness of relational communion. Well, speaking as a Franciscan, I find her presentation provides me with a sound theological and philosophical framework and structure to all that I value in the Franciscan approach to faith. Scotus examines with relentless logic, she says, the deeper metaphysical structure of reality based on love. This reality is entirely consistent with scripture, especially the scriptural de uh, depiction of God as the God of Exodus, the incarnation, and the resurrection. More than that, Mary Beth suggests that Scotus' thought has considerable value in the postmodern world, First, his commitment to the dignity of the individual human person as an image of God touches our concern for this world and its future. Second, his optimism about the created order connects with ecological concerns, with a desire for a, a renewed anthropology. Third, the centrality of love over knowledge as key to true rationality presents a different model for us to understand ourselves and our place in the world. And fourth, the importance of freedom as a perfection of God and of human reason connect his thought to contemporary concerns for autonomy and moral living. Scotus's philosophical insights have a modern resonance. They frame the human journey in terms of the dignity of the individual, the importance of rationality, and the primacy of freedom. At the same time, the particular way in which they are organized challenges us to reconsider our understanding of these key elements in the light of the perfection of human nature in love. In my view, this takes us right back to the words Jesus heard at his baptism. You are my dear son, and in you I take great delight. That slightly different translation is from the one-line New English translation published in 2005 and revised in 2017. And again, there is a subtle 
difference in meaning. Has it ever occurred to you that the Holy One might take delight in you? As you begin to respond to what you perceive of that love, doesn't it call forth a joyful desire to please rather than than a dutiful obedience? The nature of the relationship changes. The trust builds. The treasured words of Scripture come alive with new resonance and meaning. Day by day the relationship grows and the communion deepens. Many years ago, my dad came back from the war. And of course, with Anzac Day just recently, uh, those sorts of things come to mind. He'd been away for nearly five years, and just before he left, my sister was born. She was just a little baby when he left. And on the day he came back, we all rushed down to the railway station in Palmerston North, and the train chuffed in with clouds of steam everywhere, and hundreds of khaki uniforms poured out of the carriages, and we went through the crowd looking for Dad. Sorry, (laughs) just getting to me a little bit. We caught sight of him, and he caught sight of Eleanor, now five. And the look on his face I will never forget beaming in love as he gathered his daughter up into his arms and we all walked home together. We know how to love our children. Don't doubt you are the beloved children of God.